Welcome to episode 11 of Matthewlinity, Critical Study of Matthew and Masculinity. And this is a different kind of episode that I've got today. I have not edited this episode to be like an ordinary episode. Uh, it's basically unedited. <laughs> um, uh, but I would like to talk about giving a conclusion for Matthew chapter 1, because I'm wanting to finish with Matthew chapter 1 and to move on and, um, well, have a, have a little bit of a break, but then to move on. Um, I've just written the book, uh, which I've used episodes 5 to 10 as the basis for the book, um, and I've handed that in to the publishers, and I'm just waiting to hear what, what's going to happen, and... So it's probably going to be another year before it, it ends up getting published. So, so I've spent the, the last six months or so getting the book, basing the book on, on the episode. So that's why the, the podcast episodes have been really helpful for me to know what chapters to include in the book. And so the book is The Poetics of Matthew 1. And the subtitle will be The Five References to Mothers and Other Patterns. And the reason why it doesn't talk about masculinity in the title of the book is because the the approach, uh, the the method, is is about um, working out the poetics. Uh, how does it work? Like how, how does Matthew chapter one operate? How does it fit together? How does it work? Um, what what's going on? Um, that's the poetics, the makings of 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 it how how is it made and what is it what is it achieving what's basically the word poetics is a really succinct way of of getting to all of those kinds of questions and it just so happens that patriarchy is is a theme that is what it's themed around the theme of of patriarchy it's a patriarchal theme in Matthew chapter 1 and so it brings up a lot of issues about masculinity and elite masculinity and challenging masculinity and challenging patriarchy um, that's the way that it's operating in Matthew chapter 1 that's how it how it works and so when I started studying the poetics and seeing that well that seems to be the main theme of the first chapter of Matthew then it made sense that the podcast would put it put that in the title uh, critical study of Matthew and masculinity to remind me to not forget to keep thinking, to keep an eye on what's happening, what's happening in relation to the men in the story, what, what, how they're being portrayed, uh, how they're being critiqued, what, what's going on with the, the, the bigger, the bigger picture. How is Matthew chapter one introducing the main themes of the book? Um, yeah, so it's my interest is in poetics, but it just so happens that Matthew is the the poet, the poetics of Matthew is. Is about uh, how does the the heavenly kingdom, um, the with, with the heavenly patriarch, how how does that arrive on earth so that the the kingdom of God um, comes to earth? That uh, seems to be what Matthew is very interested in: the overlap of of heaven and earth, and how how does how does heaven's kingdom, the greatest kingdom of all? How does that arrive on earth? And how did the Messiah arrive? Is, is the, first, the first chapter is how did the Messiah arrive? What was it 
that enabled the Messiah to arrive, and it's looking at a patriarchal theme, and then showing the clash between patriarchal agendas of, of the human patriarchs with the heavenly patriarch and the incompatibilities there, and that it's the moments where the human patriarchs are not determining their heirs. They do not have the prerogative to determine that particular heir. Those In five cases, that's highlighting how what, what enabled the Messiah to arrive. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the book itself doesn't refer to masculinity or patriarchy in the title um, because of the, the methodology of, well, let's just go with the book. What What is the main theme in the book of the first chapter of the book? It just so happens to be a patriarchal theme. Um, but, of course, the other chapters seem to carry on on the theme as well. And so, as a concluding um, episode, well, I, I, I hope to keep keep going with the episodes as I keep studying, but am I going to go and dive straight into chapter two? I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm hoping to, but I, I'm just needing a little bit of a break at the moment to figure out what, what's, what's, what's next. Um, yeah, so as a conclusion, episode 10 worked pretty well as a conclusion because it was concluding the big question of the, the references to mothers, why are some mothers referred to, what, what's going on with, with the pattern there, that, that was a good conclusion. So episode 10 was itself a conclusion. Uh, but there are so many other kinds of conclusions that uh, we, could, we could give. Uh, we could look at conclusions in terms of how does this patriarchal emphasis on critiquing patriarchy, how does that continue throughout the book? Does it continue throughout the books? Um, um, and, well, I think it does, but I, I don't want to impose it on every chapter and say, well, you know, we've got to make every chapter conform to what what we find in the first chapter, because um, that would undermine how, how present it, it is. I mean, obviously people... It's, it's a good methodology to have something and then to impose it as a strict um, parameters to, in order to investigate something that works as well. Uh, but when it comes to the approach that I'm most interested in, poetics, that's how how is it operating? Can we find the answer in the text rather than imposing the answer on it? Um, that's, yeah, that's what I'm mainly interested in. And, and yeah, it happens to be a patriarchal theme that's, that the book starts with as an introduction. Now, so why is Matthew chapter 1 introducing a patriarchal theme at the start and how does it continue on? That that's something that would be good to keep to keep working on. And I've got a couple of answers um, or ideas to share in this unedited <laughs> in this unedited episode that um, um, that is another kind of conclusion for Matthew chapter 1. And so one one idea is to think about what it is about Matthew chapter 1 and also chapter 2 that we normally think of um, interpreting interpreting it. So some of us don't really think of the first two chapters as introducing the main themes of the book um, because we think, well, Jesus doesn't say anything. He hasn't grown up yet. He's, you know, he's still an infant. Uh, it's... it's uh, for most of chapter one, it's just patriarchs and 
and and then a story about Joseph about to do something and then told to do something and then he, he does something and so we don't really think of it as introducing the main themes of the book and this partly comes from comparing the book of Matthew with the book of Mark so the gospel according to Mark uh, it starts basically where Matthew chapter 3 starts so the first chapter of Mark is basically where we're up to when we get to Matthew chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Matthew corresponds pretty pretty much where the Gospel of Mark is starting, where Jesus arrives to be baptized. So Jesus just appears, uh, <laughs> um, just Jesus just shows up in, in the book of Mark. That's how the book begins. Jesus shows up, along with everyone else, to be baptized by John the Baptizer in the wilderness. Um... And, yeah, so when we're comparing, if we start to compare, okay, well, Mark is sort of missing a, sort of a, like a, a prelude to, to, to the story. And then Matthew has this, it's kind of like a, a prequel to the story. Like what, what's happening before Jesus has grown up and he, he comes to be baptized? What, what's that story? So the first two chapters kind of function as a bit of a prequel. And that's okay. I think that, that that sort of interpretation, it's not quite, it's not really quite getting into why do we need the first two chapters? I mean, it was okay for the book of Mark to just begin where it began. We, you know, people don't really need to know who who is Joseph and Mary, like really, like what's going on with Mary and Joseph? People don't really need to know that. What's going on when, when Jesus was a baby? Where does Jesus come from, and, and, and like, what kind of parents are Jesus's parents, and what about Jesus's parents' parents, and, and like, how far can we go back, and and you, what's that's not really relevant. In fact, if we were to ask um, that kind of question uh, for most of the first century, uh, you know, prior to the time that Matthew is published, I think that that's it's not really considered to be a relevant kind of question. I mean, if someone to, were to ask these kind of questions to someone like Paul, uh, you can imagine Paul saying, well, that, you know, that's not really how we're, we're not really thinking about those kind of issues. That's, that's not, we're not really categorizing Jesus in, in that way. Like Jesus breaks those kind of categories. Like just consider the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and what Jesus achieved, what God worked through him, that, that stands on its own. Like that, that stands, like that's, that's the, the, that's the justification and the, and the sign that that, that um, we're following Jesus and um, that, that God has worked miracles through Jesus and, and done amazing things. And that this this is what we're thinking about. We're not thinking about who's who's his parents. You know, if someone says, "Well, I'll consider this Jesus fellow if you can prove where he came from. Like, what 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 kind of places did he come from? Where was he born? Who was his parents? Tell me about his father and his lineage." Like, that's kind of the way that Matthew has traditionally been interpreted that Matthew's trying to prove these kind of to kind of sort of demonstrate, oh yeah, well Jesus comes from the right kind of places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um which is a little bit correct. Like that's that's yeah, that's kind of what Matthew chapter one and chapter two is is doing. But but this bigger it's doing something much bigger than this. It's telling a theological story that is so much bigger. It's talking about how does the Messiah arrive? Um what is it? 
that's a consistent thing that we can see in the scriptures that led up to the Messiah? What's the spiritual heritage? Uh, um, what is it? What what is the lineage that that Jesus is inheriting um, spiritually that that is consistent? That where does Jesus come from? What is what is what was it that enabled the Messiah to arrive? And then Matthew one is pointing out the lack of patriarchal prerogative. It's not the human patriarchs making it happen. They don't. They don't. They don't have the. They, they're not determining. They're not planning those particular heirs that are highlighted. That five times that the patriarchal figure does not determine the heir. So, Judah, Salmon, Boaz, David, and finally. Joseph, these are cases where the human patriarch is not determining the heir. So the, the patriarchal privilege in, in human patriarchy, it's not, it's not what brings the Messiah. That's, that's not what brings the Messiah. It's, in fact, it's the opposite. It's when that's sidestepped. It's when it's challenged and critiqued and it's not determining the way that things go that it allows the heavenly kingdom, the, the, the leader, the, the final heir, the Messiah himself to arrive. So this is this is really important. This is not just this is not just trivial things. Um, it's telling a story. So if, we, if we're thinking about okay, well, if this is what enabled the Messiah to arrive the first time, well, what about um, Jesus coming again? Like Jesus arriving again, uh, the the arrival of the Messiah for a second time, uh, you know, to finish to finish the task of bringing the kingdom the kingdom fully on earth as as in heaven like how does that how will that happen and uh, well usually the new testament writers wouldn't want to give a timeline a schedule uh, you know it's it's not it's not within human understanding and human planning to make it happen matthew chapter 1 says well the first time it it's not humanly planned out like that's the point of verse 17 is it's beyond human planning uh, in hindsight, humans can look back and go, "Oh, yeah, yeah, we can see, we can see a divine pattern. We can see the providential pattern playing out now that now that it's all been explained and now that it's finished." But it's not something that you can plan out in advance and say, "Oh, yeah, this is this is this is how the Messiah um, is going to arrive at this point in this way," and then humans are making it happen. Humans are invited to participate. The, the patriarchal figures in Matthew chapter one um, uh, are either consciously or unconsciously cooperating with um, bringing the Messiah, but they're not. But it's the it's the times when they're not deliberately having their own agenda to make it happen that makes it happen. So it's showing a clash between the two kingdoms in terms of human patriarchy. It's kind of competing for the same space as the divine patriarch the heavenly patriarch is that that's the agenda that um, the human patriarchy is kind of clashing with it the human patriarchy isn't quite it's not the best thing it's not the ultimate thing in fact it's when the human patriarchs I don't have the power and privilege to determine what happens that brings the Messiah. So that's something that I concluded, uh, I tried to conclude last time in episode 10. Um, but it, it's really difficult to show in a single episode 
how that continues for all 28 chapters. But I'd like to also read out some of the epilogue that I have in the book. So after chapter 10, which corresponds with episode 10, I have an epilogue. So I'd just like to read um, a little bit from the epilogue. I won't read the whole lot, but uh, it's just got a few ideas of some other things that are continuing on from Matthew chapter 1. So, for example, Jesus's lineage is never claimed by Jesus elsewhere in the book. And we might think, we might think, okay, well, that's that's sort of this idea of, oh, well, it's just it's just a prelude. You know, it's not really introducing the main themes of the book because Jesus never tries to win an argument by referring to his Davidic lineage. He's not he's not trying to claim an elite pedigree to you know to win an argument. Or, in fact, when when Jesus wants to demonstrate. Um, um, that the Messiah might be Lord of David rather than Son of David, he's um, seems to be undermining the whole idea of of proving a Davidic lineage. So this is this is interesting because well, how does that fit with Matthew chapter one? Well, one way to look at it is that Jesus is like Joseph. He he's um, um, his dad, so his his, uh, his adoptive dad or uh, foster dad. Or, uh, I'm not sure what people. There's so many different terms to describe the relationship between Jesus and Joseph. So, um, what, the the guy who was known to be Jesus's father, um, because Joseph doesn't claim what he could potentially claim. He could he could have potentially claimed to have um, access to Mary as his his wife. And her child is his child, and but the story depicts Joseph as as not trying to claim what he could potentially claim, and so again Jesus is depicted as not claiming what he could potentially claim. Uh, in Matthew chapter two, uh, it's interesting that the Magi, the Magi come to hear, uh, sorry, the Magi come to honor the infant Jesus. As if he, as if he were the new king over Judea, but not because of they know something about his genealogy, but it's because they know uh, how to read the signs in the sky, and they they see his destiny written in the stars. So it's it's via a heavenly means rather than according to a biological lineage. Uh, yeah, so this is continuing um, a similar idea from Matthew chapter 1. And then again in Matthew chapter 3, we've got the similar idea again, where John the Baptist is comparing the ordinary Jewish folks. Um, he's baptizing them, but he's a little bit uneasy about baptizing the, the, um, the Sadducees and Pharisees who come to him. They, they seem to be self-assured of their position, of their status, um, and just expect that you know John might just validate the position that that, that they have, um, and John the Baptizer is yeah he's kind of saying well that sort of that's not how it works status isn't something that you claim for yourself um, that's yeah that's that's not how it works so heritage is not something that's um, 
that's self-claimed. It's not a biological, just, um, you know, entitlement. Um, you know, God can can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Um, yeah, so the idea of that it's not biological paternity that produces heirs of God. So this is continuing again the idea from Matthew chapter 1, in which it was not biological paternity that produced the final messianic heir. Uh, also in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' baptism is narrated in verses 13 to 17. So John the Baptist seems to have figured out that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for, to lead the people with the Spirit and fire. But this moment of recognition isn't really public. I know we often read the baptism as if, oh yeah, everyone's seeing that you know the, the heavenly dove and the heavenly voice. They can hear it and they're all recognizing. It's like a public recognition, and even scholars often talk about this as you know this is like the public moment of. Of, of recognition, the, you know, auth- authenticating the role of Jesus, and, you know, looking at the relationship between Jesus and, and the Heavenly Father. And this, this is the, the enthronement kind of um, uh, anointed sort of role that's publicly, it's not really very public. It seems like nobody else is really noticing um, that, that, that this is narrated for the benefit of the readers. So the Heavenly Proclamation of Jesus' status is for the readers and the hearers to know what was not initially public knowledge. So this continues the idea from Matthew chapter 1, in which Joseph uh, is revealed things that, that, I mean, he already knows he's not the father, but nobody else has revealed what's going on. Nobody else in the story, apart from Mary and Joseph, know that Joseph's not the father of of Jesus. Um, what's going on in this story, I mean, it's not public knowledge what's going on. The, the story is narrated for the benefit of the readers and the hearers of the story. Um, yeah, so I haven't really got a lot on... I don't continue... It'd be interesting to continue with every single chapter, um, but uh, I've got a few other points here. Um, chapter 13... Uh, Jesus is depicted as um, being appalled to, to see um, scribes and Pharisees claiming public honor for themselves. Um, Jesus is instructing his own group of men to do the opposite, to not claim honorable status, to not claim honorable titles for themselves, uh, to not, not, not to claim the best seats in the synagogue. Uh, not to seek public recognition. Um, because the if, you, if, if a man wants to be great um, in the greatest kingdom, then it's it's the the servant like it's it's um, it's those who who do not uh, um, want to be served but uh, but want to be a servant rather than to be served. Um, uh, so yeah, this whole idea of um, not being entitled to patriarchal privileges and not not grasping and claiming um, patriarchal status and powers is is something that begins right from the first chapter, and it keeps going. It keeps going. 
And it'd be interesting to study this in relation to the imperial theme, which I haven't yet done enough. I haven't done enough study or research into empire studies and how uh, the imperial theme of you know, the greatest kingdom coming to earth. How how does Matthew fit with empire studies? And uh, but someone who has been working on this consistently and um, has recently finished. Um, a podcast series or he, he's still keeping on going with some bonus episodes so interesting to um, to, yeah, to to go and have a look at a podcast series by Bert Newton uh, the series is called Bible Study Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel yeah I need to look a bit more closely at uh, Bert Newton's work to see how, how it dovetails, it does seem to com- be um, quite consistent with some of the things that I've been discovering so far uh, in Matthew. Um, and it's no no surprise that patriarchy and the patriarchal themes that I've been noticing, that that's quite consistent with um, people who study empire as a, as a topic and the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire is a very patriarchal idea it's the head of the empire is is the father and yeah so it would be very interesting to to really see how these two things dovetail in in together patriarchal theme and um the imperial theme yeah so i think the final thing to talk about is here uh the last few paragraphs that i've got in the epilogue is about how matthew chapter 28 uh, corresponds with Matthew chapter 1. And it's <laughs> it's not in the way that people have usually thought, but it, the idea of the, the Gentile theme that people normally talk about, which people usually accredit um, credit to the, the references to the mothers as being um, a Gentile theme, but it's not the reference to the mothers, as I've hopefully been able to demonstrate. That's not the pattern. Uh, but it does fit with the reference and his brothers. Um, so I'll just read out what I've got here in the, in the epilogue. In Matthew 28, a somewhat genealogical context returns. The expression and his brothers had appeared twice in Matthew 1, in the first and second groups of ancestry. So verse 2 and verse 11. Other than these two references, the genealogy in Matthew 1 is strictly lineal. Uh, yeah, so um, lineal, I, lineal is the, you know, the father-son sort of progression. Um, yeah, so basically, uh, when it says, and his brothers, it's, it's diverging from being lineal or vertical line to being horizontal, branching out. It's it's hinting that, and his brothers, that there's there's a horizontal branching out that we could follow up what's going on with the brothers. Like, what families do they have? We could think of the genealogy at those points as diverging or, well, it's hinting that, the, that we could diverge, we could, we could branch out at those points. Uh, the expression hints at other potential horizontal lineages branching out from the said heirs. It indicates that there are two points in the ancestry where we might think about other genealogical branches branching out. 
Why would a strictly patrilineal genealogy, twice hinted shifting from a vertical line ancestry to a horizontal line ancestry? We can compare the two references. So, yeah, so then I compare the two references. So verse 2 says Jacob produced Judah and his brothers. Verse 11 says Josiah produced Jeconiah and his brothers. And both references seem to be connected. Um, they both seem to be connected. And what is the connection? Well, Janine Brown has pointed out that both happen to refer to a period of time where the people are away from the land. It was Judah and his brothers who migrated to Egypt. And that's not really pointed out, but because it's linked with verse 11, where it does point out the migration. So there's the forced migration to Babylon at the time um, when it refers to Jeconiah and his brothers. So is this a coincidence? Like, is it just a mere coincidence or is it more than just a coincidence that, that we've got these two these two points where it says, and his brothers, both referring to the, to the point in time where there's migration happening. So the first case is the migration to Egypt and the second case is the migration to Babylon. It seems to be more than just a coincidence. So both of them are points where it's genealogically indicative of the horizontal branching out as well as geographically branching out. And this is what we find in Matthew chapter 28. So Jesus has finally inherited all authority in heaven and earth and with this authority he sends out his 11 remaining men. The resurrected Jesus refers to these men as his brothers. And so he tells he tells them to go out into foreign lands, discipling others, baptizing, teaching others, uh, teaching others what Jesus has taught taught them, and what he's taught them has been a patriarchal challenge. So it's been to to, to bring a message that is <laughs> it's challenging patriarchal privileges. So that that's the message. It's it's going out. So it's like an uh, an imperial idea, but not. Not it's not um, it's not encouraging more patriarchy and more patriarchal privileges. It's it's like a patriarchy that's that's un, that's subverting itself. So anyway, this is where I, it would be interesting to follow up the overlap between um, the imperial studies, um, empire studies. Anyway, so um, what we've got in Matthew chapter twenty-eight is eleven brothers who are reproducing or extending the family. Not vertically, uh, by, but, but horizontally, horizontally branching out as they, go, as they go branching out into non-Jewish territory. So we have a patrilateral movement along with a movement into foreign territories. So basically, we've got the same combination as in Matthew chapter 1. The shift from a vertical line inheritance to a horizontal kind of inheritance where Jesus' brothers, in quotation marks, are continuing a lineage branching out genealogically as well as geographically. Uh, So Jesus is not simply the end of the line. The lineage branches out from him horizontally, genealogically and geographically. Yeah, so uh, that's 
I think people will find that helpful, hope, hopefully helpful, that um, that's how the the theme, because usually people uh, have guessed that there's some kind of Gentile theme somewhere in the first chapter. Well, it's at those points where, as far as I can tell, where it says, and his brothers. That's that's the points which connect with the final chapter where um, the disciples are discipling and it's using familial language, it's, uh, his brothers who are reproducing horizontally, extending the family horizontally. So, yeah, hopefully that helps people to understand uh, one of the ways that the final chapter continues Matthew chapter 1. This is uh, an important aspect. Well, and his brothers was a very minor theme, which uh, didn't really get picked up until the final chapter. So, yeah, Matthew, it's very... <laughs> It's very well crafted, very well written. Um, It's easy to spend a lifetime just studying the poetics of Matthew. So for now, that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 